So Money Episode 954, Emily Roberts, founder of Personal Finance for PhDs. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Do I have the audacity to think that I can grow my net worth while a student? Who does that, right? Well, this is what I do as part of my business now is I convince you, hey, maybe it is possible and here's how we can do it. There's personal finance advice out there tailored to pretty much every category you can think of. But what about graduate students and specifically PhD students? Where can they turn to for financial advice to help them navigate what is often a mountain of debt after so many years in school. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Our guest today, Emily Roberts, graduated from college with $17,000 in student loan debt. And then she decided to continue her education and get her PhD, but realized she was facing a difficult financial situation, which was living on a small stipend from her university. Rather than continue to rack up more debt, she began to learn about personal finance. And by the end, she and her husband both achieving their PhDs, the couple finished their program with over, get this, $100,000 in the bank. No debt. Now Emily is determined to help other graduate students do the same, take control of their financial future, no matter their income, no matter their debt. Here's Emily Roberts. Emily Roberts, welcome to So Money. Thank you so much for having me, Farnish. It's really an opportunity for us who are listening, thinking about going to grad school or in the midst of finishing our PhDs or perhaps even out in the world with our degrees, learning how to manage money um, as someone in this community has unique challenges and opportunities. And so really, we want to welcome you to the show to talk about all of the things related to PhDs and personal finance. You've really nichified here, you know, and I appreciate that because that's what makes this community so rich is you can really get deep into a particular, uh, into the concerns of a particular community. And you are just personally attached to this as yourself and, you know, as a PhD yourself. So tell us about what started your passion for helping your fellow PhD holders manage their money well. Yeah, absolutely. It really started out totally um, in self-interest because when I got out of college, you know, 22 years old, I'd never had, you know, a full-time job before. I did a one-year post-baccalaureate fellowship that sort of led into graduate school. And then I did six years in my PhD program. And so, you know, again, as 22, never had dealt with a full salary before. I really had no idea how to handle my money. It was not something that I had been explicitly taught about, you know, from my family or certainly not in school at any point. And so, but, you know, I, I'm an oldest child. And so I have this great um, sense of, I don't know, responsibility. I want to do the right thing all the time. So I, at that point, I really started, you know, delving into learning about personal finance so that I could apply it in my own life. And from that point, personal finance sort of became a hobby. And I actually started blogging about personal finance back in 2011, not my current website, but a previous one. So I was writing all about my own money and stuff. And then over the years, as that grew, I was realizing that whenever I wrote about 
you know, grad student specific issues like living on a stipend, like dealing with taxes, like how do you invest when you don't have a 401k? Those posts were getting, you know, traffic and comments Mm. and emails and attention. And it just kind of clued me in that like, oh, there are other people out there in my same situation who benefit, who would benefit from this, you know, tailored um, information and knowledge. I seem to be a little bit more motivated to provide that to them than, you know, other people might. And then from that point, that hobby, after I actually finished my PhD, turned into my business, personal finance for a PhD. So it was a real long progression, right? Throughout the whole PhD, I was also kind of developing this passion on the side. And then it sort of became, you know, in the forefront once I finished. But that's sort of the best way to do it. I mean, you have to gradually get there. And along the way, you're learning. I understand that you graduated from college first with $17,000 in student loan debt, and then you continued your education to get the PhD. You were living on a small stipend, like you mentioned. That said, you and your husband were able to finish your both of your PhD programs with over $100,000 in net worth. So let's take a little bit of time to, to learn from you and your husband and how you achieved that. And through your story, hopefully give some tidbits to the audience on how they can too. Yeah. I mean, when you say it like that, it sounds so incredible, right? Like negative combined net worth. When we finished college, we weren't married at that time, but got married during graduate school, combined finances. And then by the end, over $100,000 of net worth. But remember, that's a seven-year time period, okay? So we had a lot. It was a slow, in the middle of it, right? That is a slow build, a slow process. Also, please keep in mind, raging bull market during that time. So we did not, you know, save all of that money, but rather the money that we were able to invest, you know, there was some growth there as well. So that helped a lot. But yeah, I would love to dive into everything that we did just to give the listeners some context. Um, we were doing graduate school at Duke. So that's in Durham, North Carolina, which is as far as um, places where universities are, it's, it has a, a moderate cost of living, right? And we were not talking New York, San Francisco, nothing like that. Um, it is much more affordable. And we, at the time, this was between 2007 and 2014, we were earning together starting maybe at $50,000 up to about $55,000 per year. So again, that's in line with sort of the median household income at that time in the US and also in Durham. So that's that's uh, for a little bit more um, detail around that. That was the income that we were dealing with. But we still managed to, of course, pay for all of our expenses and on top of that, grow our net worth and pay off debt. Also, what I'm learning from he- listening to you is that Firstly, you had even the desire to build a financial plan and to pursue financial goals as students. I think when you're a student, whether you're a graduate, an undergrad, a master's degree, PhD, you're in that mentality of like, I'm a student. So one day when I'm in the quote unquote real world, I'll worry with about real world issues like investing for retirement, all of that. So what even gave you guys the initial desire and wherewithal? Because I feel like, and maybe I'm wrong, but I think even in your desire to do this was, was unique. Yes, I totally, totally agree with you. That was actually going to be my like very first point. And how did this happen? First, we had to decide to do it. And that was a big hurdle and one that, as you said, um, a lot of students get caught right there at the beginning of, do I have the audacity to think that I can grow my net worth while a student? Who does that, right? Well, this is what I do as part of my business now is I convince you, hey, maybe it is possible and here's how we can do it. So absolutely, the first point is just to decide to make it happen. And I think the reason that I did that is because I just didn't fall into that assumption of, oh, I'm 
I'm still a student, so therefore I can't do anything with my money. Again, as you know, I was getting out of college and starting to educate myself on personal finance, I was reading personal finance books at the time and later the personal finance blogosphere. And all that material was geared for people who were, you know, working professionals out of college. And I sort of just slotted myself into that category. Just I have a lower income than some of these other people, but um, otherwise my responsibilities are the same. I still need to be, you know, paying myself first and saving and paying off my debt, budgeting, all those good things. I basically just didn't put myself into an exception category, Mm -hmm. but I have to have a big sort of caveat right there is that again, this is made possible in large part because of where I was at that time and how much money I was making. So, um, 50 to 50, $5,000 for two working adults. Um, doesn't sound like a whole lot of money to people in, as you were just saying, the real world with real incomes. But for graduate students, that was very decent pay, especially for where we were living. So we weren't earning that amount or less living in Los Angeles, for example. So many people in the community that I serve now, graduate students and postdocs, uh, simply do not make enough money to save or anything. And so they're much more struggling with the budgeting and managing debt and maybe side hustling and those kinds of things. So I have to acknowledge that I was in a very, um, I'll say privileged position Mm -hmm. uh, based on where I was going to school and how much I was being paid. So I don't want to say it's possible for everyone across the board, but for me it was, and I decided to do it. You know, I, I, I heard the, I heard the advice, you know, 10% towards retirement accounts. And I took that advice. That was my like initial goal for saving for retirement. Just put aside 10% gross income, pay myself first. And I just did that. And I just never uh, varied from that and always lived on the remainder. What is your philosophy on borrowing for higher ed? You know, my parents were in of the camp and my dad's a PhD too. We lived on his stipend when I was growing up in the 80s, proudly. Uh, their philosophy was don't borrow for grad for undergrad, like try to get a degree an undergraduate degree as affordably as possible. If you do have the ambition to get a, a master's or a PhD, that's where the quote unquote investment is worth it of getting out a student loan or, you know, paying more for that degree because that's ultimately the degree that's going to land you the big paying job. I think that that in theory can work, but in reality, we're finding a lot of people exiting graduate school upside down financially. They've Overborrowed to the point where they're, you know, forget their first year's salary. They're just really going to have to work a long time to pay off those student loans. And I'm talking about doctors and lawyers and a lot of people that um, you would think would graduate into a great salaried position, but that's not happening case by case. So, what is your advice for people who are thinking about going to get their PhD and, and affording it? I, among sort of the graduate student community, draw a fairly big distinction between, I guess I'll say broadly, professional students, people who are in degree, like professional programs, right? So, the MDs, the JDs, um, other types of people in, you know, health fields. Um, those that de- those kinds of degrees are ones that the ROI seems to be there, or at least has been in the past for it makes sense to take on a certain degree of debt, because you can expect XYZ salary on the back you know, side of that. So I'll just say for that pool of students that um, I think the most important thing is just be very realistic about what those salaries are going to be and when they're going to come about, because maybe what you grew up assuming from what American culture teaches you about, you know, doctors being rich and all that kind of thing, you know, maybe that's not actually true at this point and it depends on the subspecialty that you go into. So just to be really, really um, 
clear uh, mm-hmm. about what those salaries are that you can expect. That's good advice for for anybody looking to take on debt. Now, specifically for the PhD, um, there may be debt involved. In fact, for around fifty percent of doctoral of PhD recipients, there is debt involved somewhere in their graduate school journey. So it's not to say that you know no one ever takes that debt because it does happen. Some people do what what we call self fund their entire degrees. So they are not receiving any funding like a stipend or like tuition assistance, um, or maybe only tuition assistance and not a stipend from their university. So they are quote unquote self-funding um, their degree. That's a, I would say a minority of PhD students at this point. Um, however, there's a big, big opportunity cost to going to graduate school. So even if you're being paid something to be there and your tuition is covered and all of that, um, it's not, it may not be explicitly debt that you're taking out, but it's still a big lost income, right? In those years that you're in school instead of having um, another type of job. So still for the PhD, you know, people pursuing that degree, it's important to look again on the back end of the PhD. What are the salary expectations for the kind of job that you want? And by the way, it's probably not going to be a faculty position. Right. Very, very low percentage of PhDs actually end up in tenure track yeah. faculty positions at research universities. So again, be very, very clear on what the salary expectations are, be really honest with yourself if it's worth it to you to go through the five, 10 plus years of PhD and post PhD training before you can get that kind of job. Okay, so that's about you know the salary expectations. Um, and that's a big, big p- component of this question. But to your immediate question, which is, you know, should you be taking on debt to do a PhD? I want to say it does happen. But I don't think you should one should go into a PhD program, knowing that that's going to be the case. So to me, if you get an acceptance to a PhD program, you have to look at that offer and make sure that it's decent enough to live on reasonably okay in whatever city that is, and uh, see that you can have a path forward that probably doesn't include debt. Gosh, I think there's such an opportunity when you have a PhD to make money, a lot of it. And I'm, I think limiting yourself to academia, academia is limiting. As you said, there's only so many full-time tenure tracks out there at universities. Uh, but, but think about the knowledge that you have, right? You've spent all these years studying a particular topic. You come out on the other end of that as such an, uh, a genius in that topic that you can leverage that in so many ways to be entrepreneurial at the same time as, um, thinking about, you know, maybe where you're going to land your next, um, academic job is so important. You could write books. You could write up, you could start a blog. You could start a podcast, kind of like what you're doing, right? You're leveraging your knowledge. Now, in this case, it's sort of the, the how to make it as a PhD financial. But there's just, you know, I look at people like, and this is really a great example, And but aspirational, inspirational is like Brene Brown, right? She spent many years studying her craft and her genius, and but then turned it into um, thought leadership, which parlayed itself into giving speak, speeches and books and all the things. So I think that that is a real opportunity when you have such expertise in something is to think of yourself as someone who can um, leverage that in so many many ways to monetize in so many ways. You talk about that with your community? I absolutely do. Because as just as you're saying, I mean, we forget sometimes inside academia, what a special thing it is to have this high level and deep level of training in a certain subject area and how valuable that is um, when parlayed into other areas of society, right? Um, it's, It's really easy to feel that you're not special when you're one of thousands and tens of thousands of PhDs and people pursuing PhDs at your institution. 
But really, PhDs are a relatively small percentage of the overall population. And so if you can move outside of the academic space, there's so many more opportunities to to really demonstrate your expertise because you are an expert by the time you finish a PhD. And as you said, I mean, I have found as now an entrepreneur that so many, so I'm not using my specific subject area, right, that I was studying during graduate school, which is biomedical engineering. I've completely transitioned that. But so many of the skills that I learned during graduate school were translatable for me as an entrepreneur. And they're translatable for other PhDs when they go outside of academia, maybe into the private sector, or maybe into the entrepreneurial space. You know, they can find success in those areas based on their training, even if it's not super, super closely tied to their specific research area. Amen. I mean, I think if you're going to go into grad school, even if you're going to take in, take on some debt, knowing that the odds of maybe making a fat salary are not in your future, at least not immediately. But if you have the mindset that you're going to be able to leverage this to build a business out of it, you know, a, an ecosystem really where you're leveraging your skills and your knowledge, your deep knowledge of something into so many formats and so many ways of communicating that and teaching people. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. I think you have much better chance of achieving financial independence sooner than someone who is just going to kind of go the traditional path or hope that that traditional path is going to pay off. Absolutely. And I think you hit on the key word there, which was mindset. Because we, I mean, (laughs) this might be going a little bit far, but I, I do think that academia imparts a toxic money mindset to the people who are in it for long periods of time or who survive it. Um, And that mindset is, I am not worth much. I'm only worth 15K a year, 25K a year, whatever, you know, my graduate program is paying me. Um, My skills are so common. They're not valuable at all. Um, I'm expect there's a huge culture of volunteerism inside academia. So I I don't expect to be paid for my work. These are the, the things that academia drills into you when you spend years and years in that space. And it's very hard to break out of that, um, either during that time or afterwards, even when you have a higher salary, like negotiation. Okay. Mm -hmm. Very important topic for anyone self-employed, employed in a job, whatever it is you need to be negotiating, but academia teaches you that negotiation is not possible, even though Mm -hmm. it is really, but it teaches you, it tells you that it's not possible. And so getting out of it, even if you're being offered, Whoa, that nice, you know, first post PhD job, maybe it's in the private sector, nice salary. You might be thinking to yourself, they're going to be paying me so much money. I couldn't possibly ask for more yet. We know from the wide, you know, wider personal finance community, yes, you always need to ask for more, negotiate something, salary, benefit, something. Um, and so that's a money mindset that we really have to combat those of us who are coming out of academia. Your uh, podcast has recently interviewed uh, with a woman, a PhD student in Texas, who side hustles her way to overcoming her financial challenges. So I love that you're bringing these real stories to life because sometimes you just have to see it, see yourself and others to believe it. Absolutely. And I'm so excited about the podcast, which I've been doing for about a year now. You know, I've been I've been running my business for four years or so. And I was writing all these articles to my website. And I was honestly getting tired of listening to myself talk, you know, through that writing, because I only have my one perspective, again, a privileged one with inside academia. So I wanted to start the podcast so that I could get, you know, elevate other people's voices and other people's stories so that you know, people who are following me and what I do and but think, Emily, you know, she was in Durham, like this, this is not all applicable to me, I can find guests that they do see as models, um, and can see how they can find a way forward with, you know, positive change in their finances, even while they're still in graduate school or still in a postdoc or whatever the situation is. So I I love being able to find these 
people inside my community and, and interview them and get their stories out there because they take different approaches than what I did, but they're all worth learning from. So your PhD was in biomedical engineering and then undergrad physics. Do you feel like you wish you had studied something else, even though you know your PH- the process of getting that PhD has taught you so much of this, informing how you educate your community now? But um, are you still doing anything in the science field? Hmm. This is such a good question. And I think anyone who finishes a PhD thinks about, oh, what could have been? <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> yeah. If I didn't go this route, there's always some, there's, we're kind of jaded often when we come out of a PhD program. Um, so I was really proud of my undergraduate degree in physics. And I think I could have done plenty with that um, as, you know, employed in the private sector, for example. Um, I a little bit wish that I had studied something different in, in my PhD program. So I don't often say this for Anoush, but my real passion by the end of um, my undergraduate degree was in astrobiology and which is like a far out there <laughs> subject. Yeah. And because I, I didn't go that route, I didn't apply for PhD programs in astrobiology um, because I didn't see it as, it as a practical career choice and biomedical engineering, which I was also passionate about. Um, it also was a good fit for me. That was a much more practical area. I could see that there were going to be job opportunities on the back end of that in the private sector. It was a growing field. It is a growing field. So I made that more practical choice in my, you know, career decision. And now that I, I essentially am completely away from, you know, active work in that area. Now that I am away from that, I wish that I had followed my passion. If I'm, if I'm going to have a PhD degree, PhD that I don't use in, in the sense of the research area, why didn't I just go for what I was really passionate about and still end up in the same place where I am now? But you know, it's all hindsight, right? It's, it's very difficult to, to question your past choices. I was very happy with the degree I had got, happy with the program that I was in, happy to be in Durham in the time that I was. So um, it's all good. But of course, there are always roads not taken. Well, and think of all the other women in engineering and science that will need your advice on how to you know, live comfortably and to, to start fa- financial planning in school. Absolutely. I actually was recently, so one of the big things I do through my business is I speak at universities Mm -hmm. to grad students and postdocs. So I give um, seminars on personal finance. And I was recently contacted um, by a women's group at a university who asked me to talk specifically about, you know, family planning, family formation issues around having a baby in graduate school or after graduate school. What are the benefits? How can we do this financially? Uh, The savings and so forth, all the questions that go into that. And I just think that, you know, I mean, as you do on your show, most of the time, you know, it's, it's wonderful to bring these issues that are specific to um, women and, and mothers and so forth and talk about the financial stuff related to that because it is very challenging and doesn't receive enough attention. So um, I'm happy that that speaking engagement is going to go forward. I'll have that opportunity to do that, do all the research. All of that will get turned into more, you know, podcasts and articles and so forth. So I'm, I'm happy to be having that little bit extra focus going forward. Well, I'm so glad you have decided to uh, laser focus in on this particular demographic. I know that I have listeners who reach out sometimes and they're like, I'm considering a PhD or I'm in it and I really need some catered advice. So everybody should find Emily Roberts, uh, PF for PhDs. I've had guests on this show before who have gone on to get their MDs, their JDs, and they have, like you, completely left sort of the field because they have found better ways to make money. You know, I have a, a friend in this in this space who was a um, a doctor for a while, but then you know had all these loans and used real estate investing as a way to pay off his debt, and then kind of parlayed his whole career into real estate. Do you find that 
Is what's happening more and more that people, as a result of trying to find ways to afford, ironically, afford the degree that they got, like you, right, go completely into that direction of like exiting from that from that study that that sort of that subject into something else, whether that's real estate investing or entrepreneurship. You know, I am connected with this wonderful community um, of other self-employed PhDs. It's part of the Beyond the Professoriate brand. Uh, they help people uh, coming out of PhD programs find careers that are, you know, good matches for them and, and be able to get those kinds of jobs. And so we have sort of a subgroup called self-employed PhD. So there are a good number of us <laughs> who are now, you know, out and doing something completely, well, not even necessarily completely different with our PhDs, but a lot of the people who I know through there are using some of the skills that they, you know, develop through their PhD programs, for instance, in, you know, scientific writing, grant writing, editing, those kinds of skills, which you definitely hone during a PhD, they've turned that into businesses, um, and other kinds of skills as well. So this is definitely something that's happening. I don't know that it's a huge trend. The big trend with people with PhD degrees is really just increasingly (laughs) recognizing that being inside academia as, again, a tenure track faculty member or even some kinds of other positions that are not tenure track, uh, whereas that used to be, you know, the lion's share of PhDs would do that some decades ago. It's, it's again, in the single digit percentage um, now. And so the vast, vast majority of people are exiting academia Mm -hmm. entirely, and they really do not have the career in many cases, I don't want to say this universally, but in many universities, they're not preparing the graduates well. Now, some people are developing wonderful programs. I just talked about with someone um, at the University of Virginia. They have a wonderful PhD plus program. Duke has the same kind of thing. Um, but more universities need to be doing that kind of career development to help PhDs be placed into careers that make a lot of sense for them that are yeah. going to be outside of academia. I, I do think that a lot of this responsibility is from the institutions to be able to Um, justify, quite frankly, the price that they're charging you to go through their program. And if they're they're, they're graduating you without any kind of tools or resources or expectations of what it's going to be like. And I I think that's, um, that's a crime. Call yeah, you know, there, there's been there's been progress in this area. For instance, the NIH, the National National mm-hmm. Institutes of Health, has given out grants to a lot of institutions in recent years for more of this career development um, and professional development kinds of you know programs for people to pilot, and then they share the research and it can be spread. I'll just say at this point that it's it's quite variable. Um, whether your institution does a good job with this, a mediocre job, nothing at all. And so this is, I think, definitely something that people entering graduate school or entering a PhD program should be evaluating when Mm -hmm. they get their offers of admission, not only, okay, what's the stipend? Can I live there? But how is this program going to help me find the career that's right for me? Um, Maybe, maybe you think at that point, you're going to be in academia and a certain percentage will, but most likely you're going to end up outside of academia. And so how does this program actually prepare you and help you find that next position? Very good. That's an important measuring stick for sure. Here's a question that's in partnership with our sponsor, Chase, which is, um, Emily, what's something that you're practicing in your financial life, in your personal financial life, that's helping you achieve financial security today? Um, and we haven't really even ex- talked about like where you guys are today. And, um, you know, I know you guys saved $100,000, but, you know, are you retiring early? Like, what's the, what's the big plan, the big vision? But what's something that you practice? It could be using a particular app, a certain strategy that you have that's helping you feel more financially secure? 
Yeah, absolutely. I love this question. So one thing that I've done from day one, I mentioned it kind of obliquely, is percentage-based savings, right? So when my income was smaller, I wanted to save, my goal was to save 10%, because that was the advice I heard, right? 10% to your retirement accounts. And so during graduate school, since graduate school, you know, we're now up to saving 20% of our gross income into only retirement accounts. And then we have some other goals outside of that as well. And so what I love about percentage-based, you know, savings goals and percentage-based budgeting is that it grows or shrinks <laughs> with your income, right? So you can start out saying as a graduate student making, you know, 25K, whatever it is, okay, I'm going to save 10%. That's only, you know, $2,500 per year. Um, that's pretty, you know, somewhat accessible at that uh, level. But then later, you know, get out of graduate school, get out of the postdoc, have a higher salary. Maybe it's, you know, a six-figure salary at that point. If you're still saving that percentage, well, that's turned into quite a bit more money, right? And so that percentage has really been um, a guiding point for us through, you know, the variations in our income over the years. And so I think it's a great suggestion for anyone who's anticipating changes in their income is just try to stick to a percentage-based plan. Yeah, having a benchmark, a rule of thumb, these are all behavioral tactics that we all cling to as humans. And now I guess the question is, what's what's next, Emily, um, financially for your family? What's what's a big goal on the radar? Oh, big goal for us is home ownership, Farnoosh, because we are still renting. 34 years old, we have never um, owned our own home. Right now, my husband and I live in Seattle. Um, it's not our long-term plan to stay in Seattle, so that's why we have not purchased here. Um, but we do want to purchase and we're saving for it. So we're saving up, you know, lots of cash and, uh, going to get that big, you know, down payment that we need in another high cost of living, um, area of the country. So that is on the horizon at some point. All right. Well, we'll be keeping you accountable as you keep your constituents, your PhD community accountable and help helping them all with all their, uh, individual financial needs. Thank you so much, Emily, and, um, have a great fall. Thank you. Thank you, Furnish. Thank you so much for having me on. You can learn more about Emily on our site, PF for PhDs. She's also on Twitter at PF for PhDs and on Facebook at Personal Finance for PhDs. All this information is on somoneypodcast.com. You can listen to the episode, share it, and also let me know if you have a question for our Friday episodes by clicking on Ask Farnoosh. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, and I hope your day is so money. Money.